Again, it is really good to be able to be with you today. I know Micah really does want to be here, um, but uh, Amber really wants him home more. And so that wins as it should. This week, obviously, is the week of Christmas. One week from today, we will be in the throes of celebrating all of that. And the youngest among our church family are the ones, obviously, that are the most excited in anticipation for that day to finally arrive. But I found as I've grown older, I don't anticipate Christmas so much as I use it as an opportunity to reflect. I find myself reflecting on Christmas's past. And so this week at some point, I will remember uh, Christmas 2009 when the blizzard hit Johnson County and my family got 24 uninterrupted hours together, which we don't normally get. I enjoyed that. My daughter, for some reason, looks upon that as the worst Christmas, perhaps, that (laughs) she has ever experienced. I'll find myself reflecting on when we lived in Tennessee in Christmas 1998 when an ice storm came through our community uh, on Christmas Eve, and a lot in our church family lost their electricity, and Julie and I, living in the parsonage, had electricity We had some of our church family in and fed them Christmas Eve dinner. I always treasure those memories. But here's the thing. Memories can descend into sentimentality if we're not careful and can cause us to over-romanticize the past at the expense of really appreciating the present. In other words, memories are great. But sentimentality distorts reality. We look back on those times as better than what they actually were. In fact, sentimentality is actually one of the biggest threats to truly appreciating Christmas. But I'm not talking about sentimental memories at this point. I'm talking about the mawkishness that distorts the reality of the meaning of Christmas. We see it commercially. Hallmark will bomb us with sappy movies sharing the same plot but different actors sometimes. Uh, we, We hear it musically with chestnuts roasting and wishes that all of our Christmases be white, which apparently are going to come true this year. But of particular concern is when that finds its way into our thinking theologically. We may think that we don't think theologically, but anytime we're thinking about God and His truths, we're thinking theologically. I constantly remind our teaching team that when we're writing Advent sermons, we have to bear in mind that people don't want to think at Christmas. They want to feel at Christmas. And that's part of why Christmas messages, I think, are among the hardest to write. Because worship, and and Christmas is, is preeminently a season of worship, requires us first to think deeply about the great truths of our faith. And if we do that thinking properly, then our affections are fired and we are able to worship in a rich and authentic and not in an empty and superficial way, which is what can happen with Christmas worship when all we want to do is to feel. And I find that I especially have to fight the syruply, syrupy inclination of Christmas when we consider as we are today that Jesus is love veiled in flesh. We have an insatiable desire for sentimental nonsense when it comes to how we think about love. But if we are to appreciate the profound glory of what it means to proclaim that Jesus is love 
veiled in flesh. We've got to release our understanding of God's love from the sentimental nonsense that holds it hostage year-round, but especially at Christmas. So here's what I want to do today. I want you, if you would, please to find 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 in your copy of God's Word. If you need to use your uh, table of contents, do so. It's towards the end of the Bible. We're going to walk through a handful of verses together to make sure that we are processing what they teach us about the love of God accurately. And then I want to give you three kind of broad truths that they communicate us that should propel our ideas and thinking about love into this very, very important week and lead us ultimately to really worship. So I hope you found verse 7 of 1 John 4. Follow along as I read the first two verses of this brief passage. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Now, these verses give us two statements of fact about love. John says that God is uh, that love is from God in verse 7 and that God is love in verse 8. And that second statement that God is love actually builds on the first that love comes from God. John says love comes from God. Perhaps a better way to think about it is to think of that word from as being out of or flows from. So what John is saying in that verse is that is that love comes out of God. It flows from God. In other words, here's a helpful way to think about it. God is the headwaters of love. A few years back, we were visiting my daughter and her husband in Minnesota, God-forsaken, cold Minnesota, but it was in the summer so we could navigate it. And while we were there, we took a day trip to Lake Itasca. Just out of curiosity, raise your hand if you know the significance of Lake Itasca. Only nerds like me, right, know the significance of Lake Itasca. The reason I wanted to visit it is because there's a little outflow that you could overlook that comes out of that lake and forms a tiny little stream that is the headwaters of the Mississippi River. That entire massive river that drains part of 32 states and two Canadian provinces finds its source in that small Minnesota lake. I used to drive across the massive bridge that spans it in Memphis when we lived in Tennessee. And on that day, I waded across it with my daughter. Any experience with the Mississippi River is an experience in some way with the water that finds its source in that stream. So when John says that love is from God, he's telling us that the headwaters of love is God himself. So there is a sense where we can say that any experience of genuine love that happens anywhere in the world at any point in human history is an experience that in some way finds its source in God. That makes love an experience of something we call common grace. Now common grace references the, the blessings that God stows freely on mankind. Common graces are those things that benefit the entire 
human race indiscriminately. So a beautiful sunset is God's common grace that anyone can enjoy. Rain and harvest are God's common grace that anybody can enjoy. And yes, the experience of giving and receiving genuine, unselfish love is an experience of God's common grace. So because of God's common grace, we can rightly say that any time that anyone, Christian, Muslim, atheist, anytime anyone has the experience of giving and receiving genuine, pure, unselfish love, they have had on some level an experience that has its source in God himself. Why is that? Why is it true? How is it possible that the experience of genuine, pure, unselfish love, regardless of where it is encountered, is an encounter with God? Because what flows out of something always carries the characteristics of its source. The reason I find water in the Mississippi River at the mouth of the river in the Louisiana Delta is because Lake Itasca in north-central Minnesota is Water. So love flows from God because John tells us love is from God. It flows out of God, and God, he says, is love. This is why it is so important to lift our thinking about love beyond the sentimental nonsense where it is found in most of our lives. When we experience love, we are entering into a divine space where we experience on some level God himself. But we should ask the question, so how do I know beyond Scripture that that is true? I mean, why should I believe beyond the statements of faith that the, God's word is inerrant and infallible? Why should I believe that that is true? Especially, we should ask that question when we are going through times of uncertainty and trial. When, when our idea of love is conditioned by sentimental nonsense, we can fall prey to the idea that a God of love would never visit heartache or, or hurt or suffering on our lives like he did, for instance, the life of Job. And when that happens and the hurt and the heartache or suffering is deep and God's purposes for allowing it are unclear, it's easy for us to say, why on earth would I ever dream that what verse 8 says is true, that God is a God of love? And based on my situation right now, why would I ever think, even start to think, that he loves me personally? And John actually has got that in mind, and he gives us the answer and highlights it in two ways. Look at verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Two things he says here. First, he says that God made his love manifest in sending to us Jesus. Now, we don't use the word manifest all that much, but it just means to reveal or to make clear. So John is saying that God made clear that he is love because he sent to us his son Jesus. But these verses also tell us that God did more than simply send Jesus, don't they? They, they tell us that he sent Jesus to atone for our sins. The depth of God's love 
is most clearly seen in the fact that God in Jesus bore in a human body the wrath that our sin deserved. The word propitiation, not a common word. I'll almost pay you a dollar if you've used it in a normal conversation this week. It's just not a word we use. But it means basically to satisfy. The idea of a God who is just and must punish sin and a God who is love is reconciled by God himself on the cross. So if we ever doubt that God is love when we're going through trial, if we ever doubt when we're going through trial that God loves us, we only need to ponder the reality of the cross of Jesus Christ, upon whom hung one who was love veiled in flesh. Now, buckle up for what he says next because it's one of the most challenging things you'll ever read. And if I were to pinpoint the most challenging thing that God has has pressed upon me in the last couple of years, it's what we're about to read. Look at verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. That is just a simple, definitive statement. If we love God, we should love one another. Now, John is thinking primarily of the love that followers of Jesus should demonstrate to one another. But verse 11 flows hard on the heels of the statement of God's love for sinners in verse 10, as evidenced by Christ's death on our behalf. So while the idea of Christians loving Christians is foremost in John's mind. This statement doesn't exclude love for everyone. In other words, it's not saying love one another, but you can hate everybody else. It is saying ultimately that God loves all sinners and because he does, you also ought to love all sinners, redeemed or not. Then John follows up this simple definitive statement that if we love God, we should love one another with a breathtakingly stunning observation. Look at verse 12. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. John in that verse starts off with the nothing new category. He says something I think probably all of us know, that no one has ever seen God, which is true. No other human being has ever beheld the fullness of God, only manifestations of tiny aspects of that fullness. Moses wanted to see God, but God said that he couldn't see him and live. So Moses was only permitted to see the residuals of God's glory. As he passed by, Job was only permitted to see God hidden in the swirling tempest of a whirlwind. Isaiah was only permitted to see God high and lifted up in the temple and then only from a distance, but close enough for him to recognize that even the angels of heaven shield their eyes from the fullness of God. The technical term for these encounters is theophany. What's a theophany? Well, a theophany is a visible manifestation of God for the naked eye. God is not a burning bush or a whirlwind or a robes train filling a temple. These things are just vehicles through which an aspect of God can be shown to the world. 
They are always limited because nothing can fully reveal God except God himself. And to see God unfiltered again is a death sentence. We can't take it. So nothing new to what John is saying. No one has ever seen God. But then the mic drop moment, which has just stunned me for a few years now. Read verse 12 again. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. In order to see really the, the unbelievable thing that, that John is saying, it would help to replace that semicolon in verse 12 with the conjunction but. It reads something like this. No one has seen God but if we love one another. God's abides in us and his love is perfected, made obvious in us. Make sure you get this. John is saying that when we love others, we become a theophany, a visible manifestation of God in our interaction. Just as God is not a burning bush or a whirlwind or a temple, we are not God. But when we love others, we manifest a small part of him, a a physical representation of him to the world around us. That's ridiculous. I mean, just think about that. It's ridiculous that you and I as fallen human beings, when we manifest God's genuine love to the other worlds, are showing God to the world. In our love for other followers of Jesus... And in our love for others outside of the faith, even enemies of the faith, you and I are vehicles that show God to the world when we love others. Because we live in a fractious and contentious world, we often tend to think that we're manifesting God's love when we're outraged, when we're attacking sinners or other Christians with whom we disagree. It's as if we think that God needs our righteous indignation and our anger at secularists on one side or the hypocritical evangelicals on the other to prove that he's real. Do we challenge sin? Yes. Do we challenge doctrinal drift? Yes. But when we do it parading our outrage, hello, social media, it isn't God we're manifesting to the world. More often than not, our righteous outrage is nothing more than the idolatry of self masquerading as spiritual conviction. The clear implication in these verses is this. If you don't love others, if your default attitude towards others is not love, it calls into question the authenticity of your faith. It's, in fact, it's more than an impl implication. John has said it already in 1 John. He'll say it again in the verses that follow. John believes that love is a key, perhaps the key indicator of a genuine relationship with God. At the very least, he believes that it is a key indicator of your spiritual health. In other words, if your heart is shrinking like the Grinch, you're not okay. You're not okay. So John demolishes any sentimental notion of God's love by telling us in these, these power-packed verses three truths that should guide our attitude as we go into the world this week. And this is going to happen quick. So if you're a note-taker, don't put it down. 
These lines are going to fill in quick behind me. You ready? First, these verses tell us that God is the source of love. Any experience of genuine sacrificial love, anywhere you find it at any point in history, is an encounter on some level with God. Second, he's told us that Jesus is the proof of God's love. That, that Jesus is love veiled in flesh. Because God is love... And because Jesus is God veiled in flesh, he demonstrates through Jesus, ultimately in his sacrifice on the cross, that, that God is love. Jesus is the proof of God's love. And then finally, John has told us that we are the image of God's love. When we love others, our lives are vehicles that are manifesting God in that encounter. So God is the source of love. Jesus is the proof of love, and we are the image of love. Three truths which we sell remarkably short at Christmas. How so? I think by grasping on some level the truths on either side, that God is the source of love and that we are the image of love to the neglect of the middle, that Jesus is the proof of God's love. Here's what I mean by that. At Christmas, especially, you will hear people talk about love as God's defining characteristic to the exclusion of everything else that the Scriptures tell us about God. People want to see verse 8 as the complete description of who God is, and it's not. In John 4, Jesus says God is spirit. In 1 John 1, John says God is light. I think I'm making my point. The Bible attributes many characteristics to God. God is not just love. But by limiting all that God is to just love, we're able to ignore the attribute that comes closest to being the defining characteristic of God in all of Scripture, that He is holy. And ignoring God's holiness allows us to ignore our sin and ignore the sin of others, which is the point of Jesus' life and work. It's the way he proved God's love on the cross. On the other hand, if I only focus on the truth that I am the image of God's love on earth, I can convince myself that all I need to do is be nice to people, to do good for people. And I can put off or ignore completely explaining to those people their need for a Savior, which is the point of our life and work as followers of Jesus. But when we bring it all together, we realize that to manifest God's love on earth will ultimately lead us to lovingly and compassionately pointing people to the Jesus, not just of the manger, but also of the cross and of his sacrifice for our sins. Which means when we do that, we have pushed the sentimental nonsense that sweetens the message of Christmas to such extremes that the bitterness for its reason, our sin, is completely avoided. God is love. We are to manifest love to others, but we can only do that when we point to the proof of God's love and thus the proof of our need for God's love in Jesus Christ. So what are we to do this week? How are our lives to become vehicles 
to manifest God's love around us. I would suggest that one of the most spiritually productive things that you could do this week, listen to, it's very technical, is to shut your mouth. We believe that as as Jude instructed his readers that we're to earnestly contend for the faith and that means that we can be ugly to anyone. Secularists, other Christians with whom we disagree. And one of the things that maybe you could do to visibly manifest the love of God in your world this week is to not open your mouth or post or forward unless you are being used by God to edify, to encourage, and to point others to the love that is in Jesus Christ. I submit to you that that would allow you to be able to put on Jesus. Remember Colossians 3.12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, what? Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. How you could put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh, Romans 14, 13, is by logging off so that you don't gratify the desires of the flesh. Let's just try to let people know that we are people of love because God is love and he's proven it in Jesus this week. But then reach out to those around you who need to know of the Jesus who came to redeem us from our sins. The simplest way you can do it, obviously, is to invite them to one of our Christmas Eve services here at Blue Valley. I mean, I hope, I hope that you've already done that or you've done that in the past enough that you know that they're not going to come with you. I, my neighbors, one of the first things that happens when you move to a neighborhood is they figure out the guy moving in is a preacher. And I went to my neighbor, after a few years, I went to my neighbor, uh, an elderly couple, and I said, hey, uh, you know, here's some cookies, and uh, we'd like you to come to our Christmas Eve service. And she says, well, I won't be there, but you're doing what you should be. <laughs> That's what she told me. <laughs> my younger neighbors on the other side of me, great people, good parents, love each other. They're just secular in their thinking, and I mean, they, they're not interested. So I'm going to have to help them find Jesus on my back porch, which is what most of us are going to have to do. But there are still some around you that you can invite, and I promise you Mike is going to give the gospel at 4 o'clock this Saturday. I promise you that I'm going to give the gospel at 11 o'clock this Saturday. Invite them with you this opportune time, the only time besides Easter where even the most committed secularist is more likely to say, okay, I'll go with you. If we can learn to manifest the love of Jesus in our interactions with everybody and open our mouth when the opportunity presents itself to bring others to an encounter of the fullness of the love of God and Jesus Christ as their Savior, we're doing what John says to do, and because we follow love veiled in flesh, we are perpetuating that mission in our lives. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.